Attention, attention, my black brothers. What I want y'all to do right now is take out the do-rag. The silky ties down. I want to see the waves glistening. If you got nappy hair, pick it. Don't let nobody discourage you. Ariel. All right, so what is the, like, newest show that you all are, like, watching? Like, we are almost in a year of the pandemic. What are some shows that you are, like, watching that you just cannot get, like, a, like enough of right now, y'all? Mm. I have not been watching a lot of TV recently, but I just started this show called Generation on HBO Max. Have y'all heard of it? With no. Justin Smith? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know what I was getting into. I'm like, okay, Justin Smith is finally gay in one of these little shows. Like he, you know, premiered his little boyfriend to the world not too long ago, and yes. is like stepping out in his actual profession. Um, but it seems really interesting. I'm not even done with the first. I literally started it right before I hopped on. Right. You know? Have um, you watched It's a Sin? On it's, HBO? No, I've been wanting to see that, but that seems a little heavier. So I've been like, that was why I didn't to continue. Prepare for it. I was like, 20 minutes in, I was like, you know what? We're going to do this another time. <laughs> Same. Which, yeah. You know, I appreciate a heavy, um, a heavy piece of art. Um, I think my book, some people might describe my book as that, but mm-hmm. um, I just I have to get in the right mood. I'll watch it. We'll get into show. that. <laughs> yes. What are you watching, Devin? Um, oh. New show, like as in just came out like a few months ago or just new to me? Just new right now. Just new to you right now. Just like, just stumbled upon it. Like, what oh. is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I went and watched Kim's Convenience. Um, I had started it a while ago, but I needed to get back into it. And I fell in love with like just the family unit and the growing relationship between Jung and his um father. Um, but that show is being canceled. So. I heard. My heart broke, actually. Really? Oh, My bitch. partner used to watch that show. Uh, I don't know why he stopped, but I, <laughs> I just saw that it got canceled. Livid. I'm, when I tell you I have not been that angry in a quite some time, I, a couple months. How many was seasons livid. was it? Five. They were supposed to do six, so they're on their fifth one now, and there will be no closure to the season. Uh, was it like because of COVID stuff? No, they haven't actually expressed to us why. Chung, the guy, uh, the actor Simu, who um, plays Chung, he was really, really, really pissed off about it. Um, and he made a post and was like, "We won't get into the reasons now," but he, like the cast, seems really distraught. Yeah, because when it's abrupt, I think you're just like, "What? Like, what do we do? Like, excuse me, we didn't plan for that." So yeah. that's. Kind of that. Um, I need to watch that. It's on my list, but I have like you all know. I, everybody knows I watch a lot of shows, so that is that's on there. But I am currently watching Selling Sunset, which is like accidental. Um, it's about like these like white people, West Coast, just selling oh, selling Lord. real estate. My friend <laughs> gave me this analogy. It's it's kind of like oh okay, but I can't get it out of my head. I was like pimps and hoes. Like brokers are like the pimps, and like the real estate agents are the hoes. I was like, oh my god, why did you put that in my head? Because every commission job, I think that now. Like I'm done. I'm like I'm like oh my god. And then um, I've been like into a lot of British shows right now, so I just like binge behind her eyes. Oh, I just watched that. Really I good. I liked it. I was kind of disappointed in the end, but the like. The tw- the ten minute like like plot twist at the end I was like, what? Yeah, the like- plot twist was interesting. I felt like 
it was really drawn out though. Like I feel like I was forcing myself through the first couple of episodes because I was like, there has to be some kind of twist. Like there's a lot of weird stuff going, and they weren't really given enough. Yeah, I felt like it was. It, it was like really, slow. Yeah. So it didn't get I, what it was supposed to have gave. <laughs> in the end, it did. Like in the end, you're like, oh, what? Boom. But then like watching it, you're just like, what is like every episode? You're like, what are we getting close to? Yeah. But, yeah. But the Overall. twist was really like interesting, but I don't know if it was worth the whole six episodes or whatever. Yeah. You know, the UK, they, they keep it short. They like, y'all get five episodes in season two coming up next. Because we're gluttonous. So, <laughs> we are. What is up, everybody? It is your boy, Lord Devree. And I'm Derwin King. And welcome back to another episode of That Black Boy Joy, where we create a space where Black boys can be themselves and... So much more. And you all, we have a guest. We haven't had a guest in a couple of weeks, but we are back, back, back again with the guest in a building. We have Hari yeah. in the Z-N. building. What Z- up? Uh, so just to give you guys a little background, Hari is a screenwriter uh, and the author of Black Boy Out of Time and the editor-in-chief of Race Bader. Race Bader, excuse me. Uh, they received their BFA from New York University, where they concentrated in film and television and psychology. Their work is informed by their passion for storytelling and wrestling with identity as a Cleveland, Ohio-born Black, non-binary child of Muslim and Hindu parents. It's Krishna, right? Yes. Okay. I, I, I was so proud when I got that. <laughs> I, have a, um, I had a, um, a mentor named Krishna in undergrad. So I kind of immediately like already like, I was like, yes, I get it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to spell it the English, like American way in the book. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Don't do that. Yeah. You know, we can do the research. There were a couple of <laughs> things I had to research as a matter of fact. Um, and cool thing, because we talked about, of course, you were a Black Boy Joy Spotlight before. So people the bio before but again script consultant on the drama series david makes man so fucking cool so love I'm the show so happy to be here it was it's such a good show i can't take a lot of credit for that that's all terrell mccraney and the amazing team but it was a, definitely an amazing project to be involved in how are you what's going on with life how what's going on um, just, I mean, <laughs> I would say not much. There's so much going on all the time. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> uh, but I'm mainly just in the midst of this book launch still. Uh, last week, I had events every single day. This week has been a little quieter on the event side, but I've had like back-to-back interviews. Um, and I don't really like talking. Like, this is going to be great because y'all are y'all, but I don't <laughs> really like talking about my work. So it's been definitely a process of like just getting the energy to get through that. So I've been tired, mm-hmm. um, but we were talking about earlier that, you know, the sun is out and it's nice in New York. Um, so I felt like really energized and already I'm feeling a lot more energized talking to y'all. So I was going to say, I hope we can energize you. <laughs> I'm like, come on. Also, we, we tell us to all our guests, please brag. Please yes. put all your accolades out there. We want, we don't have that many spaces where we can just pat ourselves on the back and st- like talk our shit or just be us. So please don't hold back. But we understand, yeah. you know. Plant your own flowers and pick them for yourself. (laughs) 
But we are super excited to get into our meat and potatoes with you. But of course, we always have to start off with our spotlight and our hot topics. And this week's spotlight, Black Boy Joy spotlight, is a young man by the name of Wisdom K. He is a TikToker. He is 19 years old from Houston, Texas, and he is a style creator on TikTok, honey. So he is all about fashion. He is all about expressing yourself and always giving you a look. And he has been going viral for his challenges that have been posted on his um, TikTok and also his Instagram. So for example, he has a thing where he asks his um, listeners or sorry, his viewers to give him like a challenge. So they could be give me red and yellow without making it, I mean, red and green without making it Christmas. So he shows people mix and matches of those things. Things. And he has this quintessential 1970s, 1960s like, type of like bell bottoms, yes. very like all type of like kind of like genres of fashion mixed into it. And he's a black boy and we just love seeing ourselves in unconventional looks, quote unquote. So I love seeing him with like if he does a bell bottom or like a crop top or he does like an oversized, like really oversized shirt that can become, a, that looks like a dress with a kilt, something of that nature. And he currently has more than 4.7 million followers and counting. And he's also been signed to IMG Modeling Agency. Wow. And we just love seeing, I personally just love seeing people do what they absolutely love and that become their career moving forward. So like you being a style creator on TikTok, now you're a model. You like, know, love to see it. Come on. So I want to shout out Wisdom K. Keep serving that black boy joy and keep giving us these style challenges because I might be wearing one of these looks one day when I get the confidence, honey. But let's get into our hot topics. So first one I wanted to talk about, and I'm so interested, Hari, if you're um if you've been keeping track of this at all, but the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry interview with um Oprah, uh, mm-hmm. where they discussed their departure. <laughs> Buckingham Palace. Let me just did you guys watch it? I watched it. <laughs> I I watched it. Well, what did you think? Tell me what you thought first, because there were so many things running through my mind, but most of all, I think I was just perplexed. I was just really shocked that it happened in the first place. Mm-hmm. Me or Ari? Oh. Ari first. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know. I was, I was kind of all over the place with it. Like, I really just didn't have anything else to really watch. Like, I'm not really that into the drama at the Buckingham Palace <laughs> and the Royals. Um, but I'm like, this seems messy. I'm gonna jump in. <laughs> um, and it was. I mean, I was really just interested in watching Oprah be Oprah, and like, she knows how to reel in a, a answer. And it was very oh, clear that yes. Megan and Harry didn't want to talk about a lot of things. Like clearly, they wanted to talk about some things and be a little bit messy, but they were still very protective of the family, which is kind of annoying. Because like, why? do the interview if you're not going to go all the way. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was more interested in just seeing how Oprah was still getting answers from it, even though they like didn't want to give a lot of specifics. It made me question what their intention was, because when people watched it, they were like, yes, another step of taking down uh, like the monarchy. Royals. And I thought, okay, well, if that's what they wanted to do, this was a cool step. But it seemed like, like, I was curious who initiated this, who who confirmed and what did they want to accomplish? Megan, totally get it. She probably just wanted to express like what her experience has been. And I think after experiencing the egregious racism she has at the hands of the royal, um, I don't need, I don't want to say the royal family, but I guess it has to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then the monarchy, uh, like the British, okay, royal. right, like 
<laughs> just like, there are other ones. <laughs> uh, there's like so many. The media, Piers Morgan, like. Yeah. So I totally got her perspective, and I was wondering if Harry was just there for support, or if he actually wanted because he said something about like freeing his family so i can only think that that is the, the destruction of the monarchy so i was curious if that was what he wanted to do mm, i don't think so yeah. it did feel like they were it, it wasn't really clear on what their desired outcome was um which like you said i think it's enough to just you know want to say your piece especially when you've been like and they've been talking shit about you in the media for so long um but I think if you're going to make this whole big spectacle, because they could have just did a written interview and published it online, but they made yeah. this huge media spectacle, which makes <laughs> me think that there should have or could have been more to it. Mm. Um, and I was actually like, I don't know. I, I'm not like the cheerleader for Meghan Markle. Like you said, to experience that racism on that degree is terrible for anyone. And um I definitely sympathize with her mental health struggles, but she really didn't know what she was getting into. <laughs> Everyone's like, you didn't do any research. Like you were just joining this institution. You did no research. And also like the fact that she never used the term black once, like it just, that You peeped really... that too? Yes. <laughs> She's like, I'm a woman of color as a mixed race Mixed person. race. Um, you know what? I... I thought it was important to make that distinction um, specifically because I <laughs> I thought that it came into play on how we talked about it amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a huge conversation about her skin tone and about her being able to pass. And that obviously is, like, that speaks to her mixed uh, race origins. So I thought it was important to market, but also for her to mention that it was anti-Blackness. Like, I think both conversations can be had at once. Yeah, and that's the part that was missing. And it's always been missing whenever she talks about race. It's like, she doesn't ever get to that point, um, which makes me give her a little bit of a side eye. But I, yeah, I agree. I think it's perfectly fine to acknowledge that that's what you are. and you don't move through the world as a black woman. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think that that creates interesting conversations because other people continue to call her that. And like, that's how she's regarded, even though she's never said it once that she was black, (sighs) which I find really interesting. It's Um, very interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I like, I was watching it and I like, I don't know that much about the Royal family. I just started watching the crown. So I'm just like, <laughs> good. I'm glad. I just started watching it, and I am just like, wow. Just like messy. this is, I'm like, just what's happening behind that royal, like that royal place is really mess. like mess. And I was like, I'm just curious about like why Oprah, right? Like why did she choose to see? I mean, they're neighbors apparently, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But like, then also finding out that Tyler Perry was providing him home and security. I'm like, Tyler Perry. That came from that. Oh, uh, Obama did... Medea's witness protection program, and I almost fell out. <laughs> I said, How did the royal family get to be with these black folks? Like, I am just like, where is the correlation? But wow. and I wonder how much of that is. I mean, I think that's kind of what we is under what we were talking about. I think there's this yearning to like claim her. Yeah. From a lot of people. Like I'm I'm pretty sure Oprah did most of that to solicit this interview and pretty sure Tyler Berry like tracked her down as like constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think there's this like urge to I like, want to claim her in ways that feel 
really interesting to me, especially because she's never acclaimed us in that same way. Yeah, I think it's, I, I would love to like look, do more research on like race in the UK and what their, you know, thoughts about it is. And like, cause like you were saying, like, I, I just, just want to know their thoughts about it. Cause it's so different in other city, I mean, cultures and other like places around the world. So I'm always curious about what does intersectionality also race look like in other like areas. I'm always curious, but yeah, she never said black, which I was like, Ooh, I guess, do they say black there? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Well, she's from California. So, I mean, she's been there for a little bit. But... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Forget that. that <laughs> she's born in California. She's an American. She's <laughs> 100% aware of how race works. Like She was on, she was on Deal or No Deal. I forgot. Yeah, she like went to Northwestern. Like, she's. <laughs> she's down the street. She's a runaway girl. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Um, so, you know, naturally a part, a focus of that conversation ended up being the concerns over his skin color, um, which was ridiculous to anyone else who is like darker than a brown paper bag. We were just like, well, what (laughs) is that not? (laughs) Genetics don't work that way, mama. Um, but I thought it was interesting that uh, a video resurfaced of Piers Morgan talking about how she rejected him, how she ghosted him, and that oh, yeah. that had been his villain origin story to literally attack her every opportunity he got. <laughs> oh my God, that man is so disgusting. Isn't he? <laughs> He's just a white man. Like, when I just say white man, I mean, I just, it's just a power. Like, it's just <laughs> white man. It seems like he tries so hard to me. Like, he tries to be disgusting. There are certain people that are so disgusting that I can't help but feel like it's effortful at some point. Yeah. He is so gross. And I'm glad. so much sense that that's how this started but with him. Like, mm-hmm. his rejection. Because, um, of course, he's that disgusting man who doesn't know how to take rejection. Um, <laughs> even though I'm sure he wouldn't need an excuse to attack a mixed-race woman. But, <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> that was definitely a messy origin story that I really appreciated. <laughs> I too, I really did, and it it ended in him leaving. Um, Good Morning Britain, which I'm sure many people were excited about, but that sparked its own drama here in the U.S. when Sharon Osbourne denied the racism on the talk and her Ooh. conversation with Cheryl Underwood. I commend her patience. I did not see that one. I read the headline. I'm like, I don't have time for this. Cheryl was so patient. So patient. I don't know why. I'm not like, I I don't know why. I think so. Hari talks about this um, about like having to take the grace or like how we're expected to offer grace to people who perpetuate anti blackness, like to forgive them. And I'm watching Cheryl do that after she's like trying to have a conversation from a really emotional and friendly place. And Sharon's like, don't cry. <laughs> and I'm like, at that point, I'd have been like, wait a minute. Yeah, see, that's why I didn't cry. watch because I would have just been so angry. That shit makes me very angry to watch stuff like yeah. that. Like, I go back to spaces where, like, I was in a workplace and, like, there was a white person like that doing that. And I, like, I get so angry again, all over again. So I usually just don't be watching that shit. Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, well, her daughter showed her ass on The View a couple of years ago. So I think it doesn't fall too far from the tree, you know, the (laughs) comment she made about Trump and his workers. I was like, ooh, all right. (laughs) So, um... 
I hope 100%. there's some canceling going up on up and um, with Sharon. And, um, I would love so to see her. Is she a host of the show? Yeah, I don't she yeah been she's been there for a while. Beginning, okay. she was there from the beginning, to my understanding. And she's been this sweet British British woman, like she's no, been. No, in, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Please do not no, don't cancel me. Don't cancel me, y'all. I'm just sorry. <laughs> But she's been asleep. Nope. I've been watching the, like the longest relationship on there. They've been there since the beginning. Yeah. So shocking because I mean it. It definitely justifies Cheryl saying, "I am coming to you as a friend, trying to give you a moment to just like think about what this. Not just about the optics of this, but the harm you're causing me as a black person." And she just completely threw all that away and victimized herself, and even used the words, "I should be the one crying." Mm. And I was like, "All right." This is what it looks like in real time for white people to weaponize their whiteness and then for white women to to do it in their like white womanness. Yeah. <sighs> I just loved it. That shit makes yeah. me so <laughs> I just love when you dig yourself in a hole. Like nobody's doing anything, but you're just going ham on yourself. And I'm just like, girl, I just gave you, you need me. I didn't have to give you the tools. You just brought brought the tools to to take yourself out the game. Like, isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely that people who have been hiding a certain part of their racism are just waiting for a point for it to boil up and then that's when they let it loose and it's like finally the wolf is out so has she been forced to make an apology yet i think that just I happened like what I, this it happened month? like yesterday yesterday? Like yesterday i think it was like yesterday so i don't watch the 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 view what is that the view the, the talk, talk one of the the set the table i don't know <laughs> i, I want to see if eve is going to say anything about it uh since she left the show but I'm, i'll be curious if she has um a perspective so is cheryl the only black person on the show Oh no! Uh, the lighter no, skinned black woman the there. L, I think she was like the editor in chief of Teen Vogue. El, no, Ellie. L. I don't know what she is, but she's the. She's very. She's don't very fair skinned. Don't quote me, y'all. I just let me let me figure out this while you move on, Devin. <laughs> All well, right. Why wasn't she? Or was it only the conversation between the two of them? So the clip that surfaced, which I, you, it varies between like forty-five seconds and like two minutes or so, because there's an extended version of it. Um, it was just a conversation between Sharon and Cheryl, and it got heated because I guess uh, and Sharon mentions this. They continued the conversation during the break. The break was uh, supposed to interrupt how heated she was, but Sharon was like, "No, I'm not fucking done." <laughs> As I was. <laughs> break and it was and it she just really dug a hole for herself in that moment there was an opportunity for her to just completely like calm down and she was like no i think she really thought that that was supposed to be a transformative moment where they shift the conversation um in some sort of like anti-cancel culture moment but every time they try to do that it just fully exposes how awful they are (laughs) so elaine uh walt welteroth she was the editor-in-chief of team vogue uh she's a she's a She's a woman of color, uh, but she was like next to it. But like Elaine, I mean, um, Cheryl, Sharon, like turned her whole body to Cheryl. She did. She had like, that conversation uh, with the dark skinned black woman <laughs> in, in the group. Course, she course. did. She did. And that's, 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 you know, our girl, you know, Elaine, <laughs> okay. you know. <laughs> so let's make the transition into our meat and potatoes. I'm so. Why excited. are we here? Why are we here, honey? This is why we're here. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Um, really, 
really a pleasure to witness this. <laughs> so I ended up also getting it on audiobook so that I could like read it when I was doing other things. And like just the like very visible and audible reactions I was having throughout it were enough for me. That's when I'm like, oh yeah, I'm really into this shit. <laughs> <laughs> what made you want to tell the story? Like what what made you want that right now? Um so yeah, I've been working on the book for a lot, much longer than it looks like. I've been, I started the book about three years ago, um, so I, it kind of shifted over the course of that time. Uh, my mother was diagnosed with cancer partly through writing the book, which is like the I think the primary impetus to uh, making me want to write what it turned out into um, ultimately. Um, but when I first started, I just had been doing race beta for a long time. Like these are the issues that were important to me, um, and I had the opportunity to 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 make that move to to pitch a book, um, and so I I did. I pitched a book about um, abolitionist healing and touching all of the same topics. But um, once my mother was diagnosed, it became much more, the healing part of it became much more central and the inner child work that's part of the book. Um, and so I think what it became, um, I knew that I needed to heal a lot of the relationship that we had um, before she passed and also um, heal a lot of the stuff with me that was that I, that I had left unattended for such a long time. Um, and that was really like what motivated me to, to create what the book turned out to be. So I want to, if you don't mind, um, I want to read a couple of quotes throughout this time that we talk about it. Cause <laughs> Go ahead. I love to repeat, like, and I, it feels good to me to hear them back again. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to jump around. Um, I wanted to start with chapter nine, uh, representation matters with a question mark. Um, you challenged yourself to tell stories independent uh, to and unaffected by a carceral gaze, which I would love for you to define here uh, for our listeners, um, which really invokes to the reader to do the same. Like I was reading that part and was like, I asked myself the same question you asked yourself. So you did a wonderful job to invoke that from your reader. So we'll start with carceral gaze and then I'll read the quote. Okay. Yeah. So carcerality is... Um, just means related to prisons, like incarceration is the same root word in that. Um, and so the carceral gaze is a gaze that um, is uh, based, rooted in the same ideologies that uphold prisons. So prisons are based on the idea that you can punish people into doing the thing that um, you would want them to do. That's how we uh, address conflict is through punishment rather than healing. Um, and so looking at everything with that lens um, is something that we've all been taught throughout our entire life. Um, I, I would say that the carceral gaze is a part of it. And so um, in that chapter, I was trying to do work against that. Um, is there another way to look at conflict to resolve tensions um, that's not just about punishment? Um, and what does that look like? Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry. Screen had gone away. I was like, I got something too. I was like, I can go next, but you got your um, second part to your story. So, your yes. question. so the quote is, how do I use any distance from carceral gazes to my advantage? Um, and that question alone made me think of what purpose of stories told amongst our community without the limitation of carceral gazes serve. Like is if we're doing so, I imagine that means we're doing that amongst each other. What is it at that point? Is it messaging? Is it like a warning? 
Mm, I mean, it could. I think it could be so many different things. Uh, and I'm glad that point stuck out because I think that's really critical and overlooked. Um, so um, when I was thinking of, when I set the carceral gaze then, I'm thinking about like traditional media and like we're always talking about representation and getting our stories out there. But when we say out there, we're talking about their platforms. We get mad when we don't get um, nominated for Oscars, blah, blah, blah. And I think what that overlooks besides the fact that, you know, we can create our own um, stories is that once we put our stories in front of them, they become something else entirely. Um, and I wanted to think of the ways that we are, the ways that we communicate amongst ourselves purposefully outside of those gazes and how that is, um, how that work can be minimized if we're only thinking about representation. So I think sometimes it is a warning um, the example I always bring up um, when I'm thinking about this dynamic is um, Moonlight, uh, which I think walks this really interesting line of like, it was lauded and celebrated and won the Oscar, but I, there was so much of it that was just for us. Um, and when I was reading reviews about the the movie, like by white reviewers, the idea that um, prison was such a huge part of the film, like Chiron goes away for at the end of the first part. Um, and is gone for a while, and that affects every single thing that comes after that. Um, that was never even touched upon by white reviewers, but like I got that immediately, and I'm sure any of us who are watching that were able to think through the ways that how Chiron shows up as an adult is impacted by um, impacted by his time off screen. And so I think there's a lot of work that we can do off screen that's like that, um, where we will only be the ones who get that. Um, mm. And what's the, there might be some benefit for doing that kind of conversing amongst ourselves. You know what it made me think of was um, Last Black Man in San Francisco and the idea of like that super small community theater of just like telling stories to each other. Mm. Um, and like they were just telling their own stories. But that was, as I was reading it, that was the only thing I could really like grab a hold of for my own conceptualization at the time. So I, I really enjoyed that. Um, did you find an answer to that question? Um. I think that's something that um, is always evolving depending on what I'm doing at the time. Like, I, I think I have to continually ask that question. I don't um, think that, that that's a question that you ask and then you figured it out. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're always pressured to, especially as we're producing art and putting it out in the world, we're always pressured to not worry about um, the other ways that we communicate amongst each other and to only worry about, uh, you know, getting more and more visibility out in the world because that's money, that's all of these other things that we're encouraged to desire. Uh, and so that's a question that I, I want to keep asking myself, especially um, as the book is, as you know, taking on a new form now that it's out in the world, like I have to keep reminding myself of that question. And that uh, question relates to what interviews I take um, do I prioritize conversations like this um, if there are other conversations with white people who ask the s s ridiculous questions over and over again, <laughs> the same fucking questions. Um, but like, I had to be intentional about like, yes, like I'm excited when I get requests from you and I know we're going to have a different kind of, kind of conversation than I would from uh, any other one that my 
team might be um, getting messages from, um, and I have to like be intentional about telling them, no, this is priority because that question, I'm still asking myself that. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's something I, I wanna always be wrestling with as I continue to, to create. It's so growth focused. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> yeah. So you start off the book or chapter one specifically having this conversation about anxiety and panic attacks and therapy, which I really appreciate um, in this current climate for myself personally, because I've talked on the podcast recently that I've been experiencing anxiety and panic, attack, panic attacks. And um, the conversation that you had with your therapist was something that I really enjoyed. And we start to see you start to write these letters to yourself throughout the story. What age were you was the the yourself that you're writing a story to if that makes sense what was the Mm -hmm. age of that person because I think for me taking that step back like okay I'm having these experiences I'm having this anxiety who to write to I'm looking at like what age would I kick Mm -hmm. off and that's something I was I've been trying to like think about and even even trying to consider talking about that with my therapist that's a really great question and that's something that came up a lot in the editing process um, because it wasn't always clear cut, like I think that changed over the course of different letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's fine. Um, when I have this conversation with my therapist, like your inner child is not the static thing any more than you are. There are different aspects of your inner child that might represent different parts of your childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because some of those conversations are conversations I wouldn't necessarily be having with my three-year-old self (laughs) right (laughs) Um, but they were there were all conversations that I would needed to have with a part of myself that I didn't feel fully connected to yeah right all of the things that um, are discussed in the book and so yeah I think if you're going to explore that work don't feel like confined to um, any set idea of what your inner child has to look like um, just whatever you need, I think, will come out of that. Um, and I needed different things at different points throughout the book. And that's why uh, I think that age shifts um, throughout those self-epistolary chapters. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, I was working um, or I had like a consultation with this wonderful woman, Christine Ruiz, um, and she had me start inner child work as well um, for something that was called an attraction point audit. Um, and she told me to focus on the exact like feeling that I was trying to like deal with, whether that be anxiety around money or um, any sort of like sexual trauma, then go directly to the age at which I experienced that feeling for the first mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. So each each topic, I do notice that you go to that point or I'm assuming is that point or, or just before it. Yes, yes. Um, and yeah, I think putting it that way is is that is really great that my therapist didn't say it that clearly (laughs) (laughs) we off the chair we off the table (laughs) no offense to her my therapist is great (laughs) uh so i love what i perceive to be the imagery of a pervasive battle in chapter 10 a prayer for choice Mm -hmm. um it it was one that i initially assumed to be between a world free of binaries and one with its own battles within the binary. Um, But I eventually believed that it was fear. So Mm. if we have the power to seek the intimacy that we need as a result of choosing our queerness Mm. instead of fear, what solution is there for men who aren't queer? Um, I think there 
Um, let me make sure I understand your question first before I answer that. You're saying um, if if that's the solution for us as queer people, yes. Then what do non-queer people have to like? Does that leave space for them to find a solution with their gender problem? Right. Or that's exactly what I'm asking. Um, yeah, I I think that uh, especially with Black people, um, the line between queerness uh, this is controversial. The line between queerness and not queer is very nebulous. Um, and I mean, our family structure is queer in the sense that, you know, our aunties raised us, our grandmothers raised, we didn't have a two, lots of us didn't have those two family, the two parents um, and the nuclear family unit. Yeah. Um, and that in and of itself, like that, is a rejection of heteronormativity, even if it's not necessarily active in the same way of queerness. But it is a queer, I would say, uh, a queer expression of relationships. Um, and I think that's part of all of our lives and part of all of our stories, even the ones of us who did grow up with two parents because of our history that shared um, where our families were, um, went through the things that our ancestors did. Uh, and so I think because of that, a lot of the same fears that we have are shared uh, and they might express themselves in very different ways. And I think those differences are important, um, which is something I'm explore, I explore in that chapter. Um, but they're also related. Like my little brother, I, I, I talk about him a lot. Um, he's straight, but he's also just has all of these fears around gender performance because of how gender and masculinity were passed down to us as people assigned male at birth. Um, and so I think the uh, solution, if, if that's what you want to call it, is similar in that there has to be work done against those things that constrict us. And I think a lot of heteronormative people and men especially do a lot of that constricting themselves after a while. And so they start building their own fucking prisons. We said that um, last week. But it's still, it's still constriction around, like they're not, they don't have friendships in the same ways that yeah. like, a lot of us do. They don't love and feel love in the same ways that um, queer people have, have been able to create families amongst each other. Um, and I don't think that that is... I don't think that that feels healthy for them. And so mm. I think they have to start asking themselves about what that kind of intimacy will look like for them. And it might not look like being in love with another person who's assigned the same gender as them, but it will be something that's queer mm. um, <laughs> just by the very nature of working against the norms of, of gender. I'm mm. holding on to that. I'm going to hold I like that. that. <laughs> I do too. I'm like, I like that. Uh, speaking of non-queer and assumed men, um, let's talk about the moment your pit bull provided a safeguard for connection. It, it was so gratifying to hear about your experience with uh, the man with the man who fully processed you, but continued his friendly discussion about the dog. Were you shocked by that experience, and have you stopped assuming men would react otherwise? That's a great question. See, this is why I, I love... <laughs> Devin! <laughs> I'll tell you why I asked it after you answer the question. Um, but that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like shock... I don't know if I was shocked because I feel like when I'm with my dog, 
that's just like something that I expect. Like I had experienced it um, enough that like I just moved through the world differently when I was with her already. Um, and that's probably why I didn't even really even think about it um, as much. Um, I think later when I did think about it, I'm kind of shocked at how it, it went down. But in the moment, it didn't really start to come up because it just felt like very natural. Um, and what was the second part of your question? Um, the second was, and have you stopped assuming men would react otherwise? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's very connected. I think, um, I don't know if I've stopped assuming if I even want to stop assuming because, you know, Safety. it's not always safe out here. Yeah. <laughs> we Listen, um, we know. I don't be trust. I'll be like, wait, hold on. Is this, this is for real? What's going on? What's going but, on? But the thing about assumptions, like, I think it's perfectly fine to hold assumptions. Like, I'm not the person that's saying, like, we can't have any quote unquote biases because, especially as marginalized people, like, our safety is important. Yeah. But what um, I think is a next step that's really important is to give people room to move against those assumptions. Right. Um, if you want to, if that's the kind of community that you want to build. And that is something that I would like to to have in my community. And so uh, I think I'm like always on, like I'm alert, but I'm always like give people room to like show, to prove me wrong. Um, yeah. Like I'm not going to go out there and just like automatically be staring down a straight guy who's walking down the street <laughs> and like waiting for him to attack me. But, <laughs> Um, I'll know where he is when I'm walking down the street if I need to. Um, okay. And it's, it's fine. Um, and I think that's like, uh, if we can build a, a way where we can have, we can honor our need for safety at the same time, give people room to to grow out of the things that are making us unsafe, um, mm. then we could build um, healthier communities. So that's where I try to, what I try to do. Um, and some days are, are easier than others. Um, a lot of the, a lot of times it's like all in my head though, like the the stuff about like how I'm presenting, and and that's a big part of the book too. Is like how do I separate what I'm putting on myself from what I think this person is putting on me? And the closer I get to that, like to knowing that okay, this is not just me projecting, um, then I will be able to regard this person in a much clearer way. Well, um, so I've just been interested in doing that work. I think that's an experience that so many of us have. I was like, literally about to say that. <laughs> ourselves more often as men, as more feminine, because that's what we've gotten a lot, than we are. I, I was saying a couple of weeks ago that I had coworkers who, when I would tell them, when I would express, be honest about how I perceived my femininity, they were like, they offered a contrary perspective to that. They were just like, um, that's not how like we see you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, do you, like, do you interact with me for real? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I walk in, um, I am very transparent that I am, um, always uncomfortable in certain spaces with sometimes cis men. I'm always like, what is, I don't always feel safe. I prefer queer people in general. Like I, I, I prefer that. So That's when I'm in those spaces, I, when I'm in those spaces with cis people, I'm always like cis men too. I'm just like, okay, like, like what's going on? Like I, like I just, I was like, what's, what's going on? What's about to happen? But I need to, I need to stop that. I need to, 
well, it, I don't I, know, sometimes, yeah. I don't know if I'd say you have to stop that. Like, I think that comes from, for one, like, I think that just shows your love for queer people. Like, I would want to be around queer people um, more than anyone either. Uh, also, because we're amazing. Um, <laughs> but I th- we do have this need to, to be safe. So I don't know if it's a, about you needing to stop that more so than just being needing to know how much of that is you. Yeah. Yeah. I go in very lot, guarded. There is still a lot that's true. Even when you work through all of this stuff, there's going to be a lot that's on cis men to figure out. Uh, but there is a part of it that's us too, and we can work on that part without yeah. um, not holding them accountable to work on their part. The reason that I, I really wanted to get this question in was because I had an experience um, getting off of the metro with my friend Omar, and um, I love Omar. a good beat. I will walk out, belly out, like I don't care. <laughs> I live, <laughs> I live for it because I love, I love the feminine version of myself. And I remember um, almost bumping into this man, and I was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." He was like, "That's all right, baby," and I was like, I remember like smiling, and I was like, "Oh, wait." Did they just call me baby? And I knew it wasn't in some like, you know, like flirtatious way, but it was so interesting to have an older male gentleman um, look at me and take in that femininity Mm. and not have anything malicious to say about it, but like accept it and even treat it. And I don't know if this is problematic or not the way he would have if I had actually been a woman. And mm-hmm. that felt really gratifying and really validating to me. And I remember expressing it to Omar, but not having the words. So seeing it written there, I was <laughs> like, well, sometimes I expect that now from men, but I wonder if other people who have that experience change the way that they interact with cis men. Yeah, and I think the the fact that this was an older person is really interesting to me in your story too, because I think one of the things that we have to realize is that there have been, we have had queer people forever and there have been people who've loved queer people in their families forever and some of them those people have been cis or uh, definitely some of them have been presumed to be cis or look cis to Mm -hmm. us Um, and so to just give people enough space to be queer or to to love somebody that's queer um, is really important like that guy could have been responding that way because you remind him of his son or his best friend or his uncle or whatever. Um, and just knowing that we are all connected in that way and um, is is really helpful, I think, too, when you're trying to figure out, you know, where you are in this space. I wanted to ask this before we get, like, deep and, like, further in. What made you choose the name uh, Black Boy Out of Time? Hmm. Yes. Um that came from two different directions. Um, the one, like I, I think uh, early on, I'm talking about like the limitations of thinking about time linearly and especially how that, um, the implications of that for inner child work and a lot of the other work that we need to do, uh, ancestor work, um, what you still have access to um, is very limited when you think about time in this way. And so being out of time was uh, a reference to that. Uh, and then, especially like as my mother's health started to decline, just think about the urgency of this work, um, mm-hmm. the urgency of the healing that we need to do. If we really are serious about, you know, the kinds of worlds and kind of community that we want to build, uh, like how important it is to start doing that right now and put these things into practice. Um, that was like the other thing I was thinking when um, I, I was thinking about out of time. 
Mm. I love that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, Devin's just like, ah, oh. <laughs> I live. You know, my brain hasn't been exercised in so long, so it's so gratifying. Like, we live, we love, we love stimulating conversations. Yeah, honey, because I don't get it at work, so this is... <laughs> <laughs> Same. So I'll actually skip the question because it was already answered um, and move to another quote. Um, and I really wish I had marked where it came from. Uh, the carceral state cannot end the trauma that comes with the carceral um, dissonance. It can only repurpose it. Um, super relevant, I thought, in the last year because of how um, states and municipalities have been trying to rebrand uh, the police when they Ooh. were acknowledging our like cries for um, the um, abolition of police forces and then just overall communities being able to monitor themselves um, and in, a, <laughs> in an effort to relieve people of the fear of chaos, um, they've said repeatedly that they won't get rid of police forces, but they've called them different names and they've tried to say, oh, these, is, these are the things that they'll do differently. And it's literally just the just, police. Right. Like community policing, but it's just the police. <laughs> <laughs> just say police. Just say the name. <laughs> and then they do that and they like name it after the people we are fighting, that we like, that we have seen become symbols of violence, of anti-Black violence, when they do that in the name of people like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. And I think that comes as a, as a bigger insult to me because the problem's not actually being addressed. Um, so thank you for that and for reminding me of that. Um, the end of the world as we know it. I saw you say this. I don't remember what interview it was, um, but it rang in my head actually when the pandemic started, like I kept calling it um, uh, a rapture or what do you call it? <laughs> I was like, this is like, this is the rapture. This is like um, Armageddon. And I was like, because it's the destruction of the world as we saw it. And um, I remember the first time I thought that, that it sometimes it could be, we could see the end of the world if we start to look like the countries that we're, we've colonized or that we are currently in war with um, in. So it's present throughout the book. It's obviously a part of how you view liberation. How do we get people to understand revolution in this way without immediately evoking panic or fear? I think, um, and that's why it's so, I wanted to talk this through the line because um, I think we've done this in our families and and uh, in, in even our individual lives on smaller scales already. Like we've created new worlds and rejected mm. this one. We've out of just basic necessity on so many different levels. Um, and so I think if you can just highlight what that looks like, highlight, you know, we never called the police in my neighborhood. Growing nope, up. never. <laughs> we already figured out other ways. And like, yeah, they, they were limited mostly by the fact that we still lived in this state. But we were figuring things out. And that process of figuring things out, like what would that mean to expand that on a, on a bigger scale? So, um, and like, what were the things, what were the elements of that? Like, how did we show up for crises together? How did we show up for our neighbors when they needed stuff or our families when they needed stuff? Um, and like, how could we organize to expand that? Um, mm. So I think just showing people that that is, 
part of ending the world like in so many different ways we've ended parts of the world we've had to and we've created new worlds um and just really hammering that home um locating it in specific uh, parts of their history mm. is how you do that and that's why ancestor work is so critical to this because you have to know what your people did before mm. uh, and mm. because we've already been doing this none of this is reinventing the world uh, we've already been doing it our job is just to do it on a better bigger level and to do it without um the same um influences like without the homophobia that we was passed down to us and like learning how to do that better uh, but we have we we the tools the core tools are there um, and so that is how i think we stop people from panicking is by connecting them to that history i like that <laughs> in the same vein in a non-punitive community is there still space for the language and concept of justice does it yeah. transform or like what happens to that that's a great question i think um yeah i think that's the only i would argue it's the only space where we could actually find real justice but i think it depends on what you define as justice uh, I love saying this for some reason, but I watch a lot of true crime and uh. at the end of true crime, like, you know, the bad guy, quote unquote, has been locked up and like, usually it's wrapped up in a nice bow. But the thing that will always be said by the family or the victim is like, I feel like it was cathartic and like, yeah, whatever. But like, I will never feel closure. I'll never feel whole again. Like, I don't feel healed. Um, and so that's not justice. I think justice is about healing. Um, and I think the only way to do to heal is to, instead of thinking about what punishment looks like, think starting from what healing looks like. And sometimes healing mm. might look um, might look punitive from a different lens. Like maybe justice is, you know, this person can't be around us right now. Um, but mm. if we approach it from a, a healing-based solution, um, it's that's where the key difference is, and it's going to look different for different people. Um, I think this justice system, quote-unquote justice system, um, is very one-size-fits-all, and that is what the issue is. Um, whereas if you're expanding right. how we approach conflict um, and all, only the only through line is healing, um, you're going to have a million different solutions and it's going to give people a much more expansive vision of what justice could look like to them. What do you think are some alternatives to power? Because we know that power is in all walks of life that we've been in and it's pretty much been not in our best interest. So what do you think are some like alternative ways that we can utilize power or alternative uses of power? Yeah, I mean, power in and of itself is not bad. It's it, when power is abused, um, as it has been in this world since we were brought here, um, that it becomes an issue. Um, I think sometimes we're afraid of reclaiming power because there's a story that like power corrupts, um, and that is definitely not something I believe in. I think when we do have power to form our communities, we might get some things wrong. Um, but power can be used to do good. Power is the only thing that's create. Power is just the literally the process of creating something in the world. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think one is rehabilitating the image of power and uh, uh, encouraging us to not be afraid of power and, re- and reclaiming our own power. Um, and to also um, be, to know that sometimes in this process, there's, it's going to be a little bit messy mm-hmm. and that's okay too. Um, we'll have to mm. grow and figure out how to use it differently because we've been doing this for 500 years, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it. Um, and so, uh, but I think the, the ultimate answer of your question is, is uh, when power is used for um, us, <laughs> when it's centered on blackness, uh, when it's uh, expansive enough to include queerness, and when it's guided by community and healing the community and keeping the community together, uh, then then that is how we use it differently than how it's been used against us. Thank you. Mm. Definitely like a question because of um, how people who are powerless will use um, what power they perceive they have on people who are less, um, or who are even more powerless to say that. <laughs> yeah. But um, thank you. I think, um, it, apologize in advance if you guys lose me, my internet connection is unstable. It's okay, um, We, you know. We hear you, I this. wanted to pick your brain about this. <laughs> are we matter, as in more insane, um, when we examine how pervasive anti-Blackness is, um, or when we delude ourselves into believing that it isn't, in order to maintain a quiet suffering that feels falsely safer than the end of the world. Say that one more time. You're a little delayed. It was, it was delayed. <laughs> oh, man. No, you're good. We see I'm you. Sorry. Can you, it's you just, guys uh, can you? We can hear you. Okay. Go. So yeah. are we more insane uh, when we examine how pervasive anti-Blackness is in everything, or when we delude ourselves into believing that it is? isn't in order to maintain a quiet suffering and a false sense of peace instead of um, the end of the world? Mm. Um, I don't know. I think the resting it on what sanity is, is really critical. Like uh, if, if by that you mean uh, we're not guided by any logics, um, I think you could say that both, of those things are a little bit insane but where i would draw the line is that the logics that uh, that move this world um what sanity is uh, defined as um just to live through this world we have to do a lot of ridiculous shit we have to be part of a capitalist system that doesn't make any fucking sense we have to um, do all these things to take on mm-hmm. these roles that don't make any sense um, so it's a type of logic to live in this world, but it's not a logic that has been working for us. And so I think if we can embrace um, the idea of not having to make sense in this world, um, that'll be ultimately good for us. And I think by other standards, mm. um, um, if we're not just mm. using the standards of this world or white people, um, then of course, like to continue, like I said, to do these things that don't make any sense for our well-being long-term is, is illogical. Um, and those are the standards that I value because I value us. And so it, uh, I think it just depends on what you value. 
Um, if you value, you know, making your life making sense in this world as it is, um, then it's always going to look weird and, and nonsensical when people don't don't follow those rules. Um, and my job is to push people to value a different type of existence that I think is possible for us. Yes, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> Devin, <Thank> go <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> I I assume that Black people are in in general because of like existing in an anti-black world so i I think at that point we're really just choosing which type of insanity we're gonna lose uh we're gonna live in yeah but that's why i wondered if one was worse than the other because historically i believe that not examining it is yeah i think yeah i agree 100 percent um and yeah i think worse is a value statement right so it depends on what your values are and if you value black people Mm -hmm. then yes one is worse than the other but this the idea of sanity the (laughs) idea of logic has never been built for us so we're not going to win playing Mm -hmm. by these games anyway i always say that i'll say the system is not built for us it's never it was not built for us so for you to believe that the system is going to have your back is absolutely ridiculous i said (laughs) i think i said that literally last week and i think Devin, we posted it on the page like realistically you cannot rely on this system and i know that sounds really hard but reality is it wasn't built for us so we have to but you know it's so hard for people to like because his, historically playing it safe and um abiding by the system means that you don't die today or tomorrow um hopefully but it's i mean easy. People, it, of course I, well and that's the problem Th- to think to, more so when i say it's easy it's to think that the system will eventually come yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to that, delude yourself. That it's, it's to delude yourself, to have this illusion that, oh, eventually everything's going to work out. Oh, eventually everybody's going to be welcomed. Oh, eventually queerness is going to be accepted. Like, you know, that's what mm-hmm. I'm saying. That, that, that is, they think pace. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also about, like, again, it's, it's about, like, what type of thing that you value. I think um, you bring up a good point, Derwin, about, you know, this is, it. you can materially affect whether or not you're going to die tomorrow. Um, and not, it's not going to be foolproof, obviously, but you can do things that keep you safe by just following the different rules. But what does that mean for all of the other types of deaths that you might experience mm. or your ultimate death? Like, is the life that you lived one that oh. you've never been living at all because you've been doing that? Um, and so I want to read, think what death is and, and like it, death is not just this one specific moment uh, and there are many different types of deaths and how what we value about death is really important to the work that we do in our life i, I love that so obsessed with the conversation <laughs> about death based on my own mental like health it struggles and like it made me see my experience with death or my perception of it totally differently. Um, And I was going to say this later, but I'll say it now since you brought it up. Um, You talked about, I think it's Amber Butts um, article uh, or essay in race Bader about suicide. Um, And I'm so excited. I'm going to go and read it. I haven't gotten a chance to yet, but there are some journal entries in here. I will, I don't mind sharing, not, I'm not going to read them, but I don't mind sharing that I wrote (laughs) (laughs) where I talk about, Um, my right 
to choose um, suicide as an escape. And I was so, we- I- I'm so glad, I was trying to have this conversation with myself because I didn't know how to have that with people without like saying, yeah, kill yourselves. Um, like how do we acknowledge that it becomes a very real um, remedy to because it is their life that they do have a choice to determine what they will do with it. Right. You broke up a little bit, so I don't know if there was a question in there towards the end. No, no, no. Oh, I just, okay. I wanted to, I, I'm going to read that because I, <laughs> I saw it. So I just wanted to, <laughs> to let you know that. Um, I love think pieces. I love those think pieces. Honey, I can't wait to get and it. And Amber is amazing. She's great. I love Amber. So, um, shout out, I appreciate, uh, the care you've taken with the stories of whom your lives intertwine. Um, and I, I, you made a point to say that in the, um, author's note. So that definitely comes across. You, you do seem careful with how you tell those stories, um, in a way that reminded me of Michael Arsenault's care when talking about, um, his mother, um, so in your writing process, you said that you will drudge up pain, deal with that pain in therapy, and then come back and write again. But then you also mentioned that you did read the parts of these stories that other people are in to them, that you shared that with them. Was this a part of your editing process as well? Once you got the feedback from them, the ones that you explained uh, elicited growth, did you go back and change any of what you had written? Yeah, definitely. Um, Many, many times. Um, And not like I didn't take anything out or like change what I was saying because they didn't like it. Um, But it always added, not always, but lots of those conversations added new perspectives that I think just fleshed out that story a lot more, Mm. Um, which is exactly what I wanted it to do. Like I did, this is not a story that's just about my life. It's about how I remember my life mm-hmm. and how I remember my life um, is, is not the only truth. And um, so I, w- I was really grateful to be able to have these conversations, uh, particularly the chapter about me and Tim, like there are many iterations of that um, based on the conversations that we had. Um, and so, yeah, definitely a very central part of the editing process. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I just like that. I just love these type of books. I love open and honest mm-hmm. and conversations that really hit home. I'm somebody, I'm a book junkie. I love memoirs. I love personal so, stories that I can connect to. So reading this book, I just was like so enamored with just like the relationships and the friendships that you had mm-hmm. and the importance that they had to you. Um, and that's something I, I'm very family oriented. I'm very like friendship oriented and friendship based. Right. So like I would, I too would have, you know, like, you know, read this to my family or my re- people that I have relationships with um, platonic or intimate and make sure it was okay. Cause I would never want, you know, but it also is my story that from my perspective. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, that genuineness that you put forth in the author. Thank so I want to say, I appreciate that. From a family boy, come on. <laughs> I appreciate how much care y'all took to read it. And these like really insightful questions. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, 
It's not that many. It's it's not that it many. It out. <laughs> no, I mean like your work did that. I think it's so interesting when you're a queer black person and like these stories they were there before. They were I saw a lot of our stories told in fiction, but memoirs became a huge part of me exploring who I am as a queer black man. Um the first thing I had ever read was for colored boys and that changed my life. Yes. Um, <laughs> helping me imagine how I could see my, you know, expressions of myself or what it could be like for me to be in love or how to be brave enough to express love even when there could be rejection on the other side of it. Mm. Um and each memoir I read uh, makes me imagine how I would tell my own story like with with <laughs> With Black Boy Out of Time, I want to make sure that people see it. <laughs> um, I, there were so many moments where I, I would stop reading and I've caught myself imagining, oh, I have a story like this, or or this reminds me of this story in my life. How would I tell it? Um, and so you really do connect to people. I, I At least I'll speak for myself. You connected to the part of me who needed to hear my queer Black story told or some of my stories told in a way that would motivate me to tell other parts of my story. Mm-hmm. It, it gives you that, it gives you that sense of comfortability yeah. and it gives you that sense of, I can tell now tell my story. Yeah. Uh, I can now um, speak cause I've been, you know, been silenced or muzzled in some form, but now I too can have that confidence um, Cause I see that coming from someone that I can re- resonate with that I can um, see myself in. Like when you can actually, like you said, Devin, Derwin, Devin, you know, um, you read the book. I, it's cause I, we, ah. I'm going to ask like, <laughs> you got to work on it. <laughs> I have to work on it. And I, Devin has a multiple names. Okay. I do. No, this is true. <laughs> this is very true. There are people who call me Devin. It's my birth name. There are people who call me Derwin. There are other people in this world who call me Joan. It really, I did that and I love it. I love having multiple names. You can just call me the Diddy of the queers. (laughs) So that's the thing, but I really, the part of um, reading every bit of the book and then taking breaks and pauses and seeing where yourself is in that is something that um, I just did. I did that a lot throughout this whole thing. Like I was just like, whoa. Mm. Yeah. Let's get into those friendships you were talking about uh, in those relationships. Way to segue, Dev. <laughs> I have one, what was it? I have one white friend left. <laughs> I, so, so much of this story seems like a reminder that your relationships will require work, whether that was your relationship with Tim or uh, with um, the friends you met Cloud, in college yeah. or with Cloud. What is the process of coming to terms that friendship? <laughs> what is the process I, of coming with terms? Okay. I was like, because I know it was kind of like, <laughs> you got it. You got I it. I don't know if you ever really come to terms with the violence of white people. Like, that's, that's, that's something I've kind of just like, <laughs> that's not, if I want to have this friendship, then I'm never just, I'm just not going to come to terms with and so I don't like I don't regret people who have no white friends because that's a lot of work to do. It is. Um, I think part of why I made the choice to continue being friends with this person is because one, I did a lot of fucked up shit too that I had to account for. Um, but two, 
I was seeing just how like invested they were into like making amends from mm. this process over the course of years, mm. and it seemed genuine. Um, and that's the most important part of a relationship is the that fact that they'll work too. Um, so even mm. though, um, it took a lot of work for me, it takes a lot of work for me to get through a lot of stuff that happened. I know that this person is also working too, even though like the labor is going to be, I'm black, so the labor is not <laughs> scared in in an equitable way at all. But right. um, I'm okay with that. Like if, and I'm also okay with saying that like, if that ever felt like too much pressure, like I know how to take a step back. Uh, at the time of my life that I'm in right now, I have the energy to deal with that. Um, and that is, um, is that's probably going to last for as long as that person keeps investing energy into, into the relationship on a significant level. Isn't that um, how marriage works? I think about, like, I watch a lot of trash TV, so one of my favorites is Married to Medicine, and I ta- always come on here and talk about how they put each other through some things. Not, like, awful things, but they go through real trials in a relationship. <laughs> but the work gets, like, harder, and they dedicate themselves to doing it, and it really just seems like anyone that you have a relationship with will will be that way, but there are certain ones that'll take just a bit more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That, and, and, and you, that is my relationship with Tim. Um, we, it's the same thing, but um, obviously on a much different level, um, but it never gets easier. Um, right. just, the thing that gets easier is that you start to trust the person more because you've seen them put in the work. Mm. Um, and that, I think that trust is the biggest difference. Ooh. I don't, I, it will take so much more work for me to trust a white person <laughs> to do that work. Um, but okay. I trust him to be putting in that work because I've seen it consistently happen. And uh, we have to reinvest in it. Like we, uh, we have to make sure we're on the same page about like what that work will look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we started the relationship off and knowing that that's something that's central to both of us, um, that trust is there. That resonated with me that, Oh wow! Same. I have to take I'm that. like saying I have to I'm, take that. Yeah, that um, the dedication I, to the work is how you build. Consistently showing that you're willing to do the work is how you build mm-hmm. trust. Yeah, I, that's how I build my trust, and that's um, my thought process around relationships that I have. Is I know that relationships are not going to be easy. I know that relationships are not going to have. It's always be high. There might be some lows, but knowing that both of us are in this together to make mm. it work mm. is the realize that is something that keeps me going. Now, when I realize that it is one-sided or mm. I have tapped out on that part, then that's when that relationship is being reevaluated and things of that nature. I'm even going through that as we speak. So I appreciate that. That knowledge is something that I put forth in my um, mindset. Like I, it's, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to go on some roller coasters, but if you're willing to sit next to me in this roller coaster, it's fine. If you are ready to get off there, so be it. <laughs> so be it. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes that changes. Right. Like even if you've been doing that work for a long time, and even if that trust is there, and that's why checking in um, is really important. And I think name mm. once you name that this is the thing that you're doing, the check in process gets easier because um, you both know that that's what you're doing. So it's not gonna come as a shock when you're mm. checking in. Yeah. I I apologize if there are times when I'm just kind of sitting here. I'm, I'm really trying to like 
you guys are getting giving me a lot of things to think about and applying these uh <laughs> these themes in other parts of my life so um, it's all mine's, happening in real time. Mine's is happening as I speak because I am going through so much mentally, physically, and emotionally. So I'm having these like moments of epiphanies or like re- actualizations and realizations like throughout this journey, like in an immediate moment, like right now, like I'm having this like epiphany That's before we get on. I love conversations like that. That's how conversations should be. Like, don't apologize. <laughs> you should... Conversations can be fluid. You can have realizations, changing questions. Uh, it makes it much easier for me as the person who thinks through the questions too. Yeah. So take it in. Wonderful. Take it in and bass, Devin. <laughs> Still in the vein of uh, your friendships with white people, how do you proceed? Because you, you talk about safeguarding Blackness, protecting it, right? How do you proceed knowing that there will always be a sort of absence or withholding in those types of friendships? Um, I, I think, and this is also true with other relationships, is knowing that you're not going to get everything in any singular relationship. And so, um, and that was what was, I was really trying mm. to hammer home in that. Oh, that chapter is that like there's going to always be a huge part of what I would think a relationship is missing from that and that for a long time I was like oh then that means that this is not workable but I think that's every relationship no even my partner is not going to give me Mm. every single thing that I need from other people Um, and so knowing that whatever absence this white friend this that might be in this relationship can be fulfilled elsewhere and being okay with that um not needing one person to to be the answer to all of your your relationship needs is really critical i think yeah what part i think something struck me about it being blackness oh sorry (laughs) (laughs) i was like oh so you don't hear me asking my question. I swear, I Go love ahead, you, girl. So, I'm delayed too. <laughs> what what part of the book was the most spring? Like I, what part was like yes? Like I am just in it all. Um, the end because <laughs> I was done. <laughs> no, but seriously, I think writing the epilogue was the most freeing and not because it like tied everything in a nice bow but it was just like I could see and point to like actual growth that had been made over the course of writing this book in particular with in my relationship with my parents that like really just confirmed that like I was on the right track and Mm -hmm. um, so writing that was like felt really good and I mean it probably didn't hurt that I was finally done with this like two years long process <laughs> uh, but it felt oh, like a culmination of all of the a lot of things that needed to get out um and finally seeing them free in the world mm. you said the damn ending <laughs> <laughs> you said finally i can only this. imagine but you know i did imagine that there was some moment where it was like oh this is like specifically cathartic <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were lots of cathartic moments, and there are a lot. All of the book is was freeing in a way, but I think the one that I was like felt like 
I could, the only thing I was focusing on was like exhale and like breathing and like a weight lifted off my shoulders. Mm. That was what I was writing about, mm-hmm. like where me and my parents are in our relationship now. Um, yeah. And so many things that I couldn't say at the beginning um, in terms of how they respond to me and my queerness um, that I can say now because of the work we've done in other parts of the book and the conversations we've had um, just felt like it felt great. Mm-hmm. It is It is always a reminder for us to breathe in mm-hmm. any space. Any space of relieving is something, or I don't even know what the word is. I think relievement is what I'm going to say. Um, it's very important in our lives. Uh, we do not breathe as much as we should. Mm-hmm. And that is what instills our panic attacks, our anxiety, our, you know, our whole things like the world coming at us. So that part of breathing like, you know, relieving this book is also like, I just want people to remember to breathe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Breathe. In my conversation I did with Tim last week, um, he asked like, what would I change? Or maybe he didn't ask, but somehow it came up like, if I could change one thing, what would it do? And I was saying like, in one of the self years, I just wrote breathe. That was the whole chapter. Or rest. Uh, because, um, yeah, I feel like that was something that I needed to constantly remind myself and definitely needed to remind this part of myself. I mean, it was said in so many different ways, but sometimes even that simple (laughs) reminder is enough to just breathe and rest. Yeah. So this one longer quote, definitely my favorite and sparked, um, a different kind of question. I hope it's one that makes sense. Um, so it says, What I found is that it starts with making a priority out of knowing your neighbors. It looks like showing up for their needs, running their errands when they are immune compromised and living through a pandemic and being vulnerable enough to ask for what you need from them too. It looks like acknowledging where the violations and abuse that the state encourages show up in you and stamping it out. It looks like trusting that you can stamp it out and trusting that others can too, which requires a certain graciousness for mistakes that can be uncomfortable, even painful, in the short term. It is always worth it though. Um, and so the question I had was, when we talk about these communities, what are we specifically talking about Black communities or are we taking into account mm. communities that have been gentrified that'll have other types of people? What space are we talking about communities within those communities? What does, what does that look like? Is that applicable to all types of communities yeah i mean when i'm talking about anything i'm always talking about black people first and foremost but i think community is defined by the person like if if your neighbor who's white like if that's somebody you want to build this relationship with where like you all have these systems in place where you could care for each other i don't know why you'd want to build that with most white people (laughs) but I mean, if that's what you want to build it with, then yeah, it applies to them. So I think it's a it's about whatever community you want to build, um, and sometimes maybe by necessity, like if if you know you need a certain number of people to buy into the way this apartment building is run, um, mm. like are we all invested in the same thing then? And some of these people are white, um, but I think ultimately when I'm think when I envision community, like I'm thinking about black people. Uh, I don't, that's where I want to live. That's who I want to build with. Um, I will move to whatever place I can find that has more Black people. Like, that's just me. 
Um, but I think you can take those those messages to whatever community um, that you've built for yourself. I, I, I ask because, you know, when I th- read it, I thought immediately of uh, the people in my home community who I left, um, at least physically, um, and how I could, I, I freely imagine that and how they've supported me and how I've wanted to support them and support them when I can. And then I thought about where I am now. And I was like, I ain't doing that with these niggas. I am not <laughs> together with these motherfuckers to do anything. Okay. <laughs> Keep that shit over there. <laughs> well, yeah, like, am I wrong? <laughs> you also, I mean, you can't start doing that. Like, to, like there's a process. I think that's an ideal that you want to build towards. But where does that start? You start by getting to know these people at least, or at the very least acknowledging that they're like there are people with whole ass families and whole ass lives that are mm. that matter and are valuable. And mm. what does that mean to your interactions with them? Like maybe that first change is just you saying hello to people you never said hello to. Um and then maybe that builds to something more. But um I think yeah, that's definitely you know, in cities like New York, in in um where like no one talks to each other anyway because there's so many people like it's not gonna look like that immediately um but work your way towards that um vision is is what i hope people take from that wonderful well i i just want to say you've written and designed you and whoever was uh, whoever else was behind (laughs) the combination of this book have really designed a beautiful book inside and out i was like taking some time to marvel at uh the like entire package yes Pretty um, right. look at the package honey it's really gorgeous <laughs> the like pack. so gorgeous yeah the cover is done by an artist named david cooper david Thank cooper you. art on instagram Thank and you. he's just really really fantastic I um I'm I'm not gonna give my copy to anyone because I've written and highlighted all through it. <laughs> like, oh, um, so many thoughts, and I I wish I could have gotten all of them out, but uh, some of them I I hadn't fully. This is such a shame. Sometimes, like I'm reading and I have the questions, can't fully form them, but there's there's so much of it. Like you with your brother, I have a uh, 15 year old brother who I when I was in school had started to grow up in his more formative childhood years. And I carry this huge guilt about not being there. So I read the letter that your brother wrote you and I literally sobbed toward the end. And I was just like, yo! I have the same thing with my little cousin. I have a 50-year-old cousin that I felt, I think we had that conversation, uh, Devin, our relationship with uh, the younger men in our spaces, not being there um, and knowing that that they do value us, who with whoever we whoever we present as, I think that is something that I love. My little cousin, I know he knows that I'm queer, but he just loves he just loves to be in my energy. But Harvey makes made such a good point about how we perceive our leaving the home so much differently than we do other men or fathers who leave for who go for prison or military or simply because the parents aren't together. We see ours as our experience as a unique one because of homophobia 
And I never stopped to think. My niece, uh, she was like three or four the first time she said that she didn't want to date a black man or didn't want to be with a black man because they always leave the family. She's a very, very Ooh. smart girl. She's a very yeah. smart little girl. Yeah. Um, and that was something that has stuck with me. And I thought to myself, and I've heard people talk about how slavery leads to black men leaving the family. And I never, ever stopped to think about how homophobia is a part of that. And we mm-hmm. function in that leaving the family as well like she could have been talking about me I didn't stop to think about that mm. that it was more than her father or my my father or my stepfather or whatever that she had watched black men of all types walk away from their family mm, and I was like damn <laughs> I mean yeah that 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 connotation like of um we like we we us leaving like us leaving and taking ourselves and going on is like something that's we we do for ourselves we don't think about the others that we leave behind sometimes mm. it's because we are in this selfless moment i mean selfish moment we which all, we need we need we all wholeheartedly need that but then when we get to a space where we you know we've went so far we've carried on we've moved yeah. and then we then we actually have that moment of sitting down <laughs> You know, we gather our thoughts and then we look at what we actually turn around and look at what we were leaving. It's oh. like, oh, mm-hmm. so we left these things behind to get away from those things that was there as well. You yeah. have to find your way back according to who you are today. And it, it does hurt that a part of that means that, like, could we have, can you guys imagine going through that transformation, that, accept, that acceptance of self with the people you left behind? Um I, I think if I remember correctly, you mentioned that your your brother said that you could have, but I could I could not accept what that looked like. Mm. I think I was afraid of um, my brother being so indoctrinated into mm. heteronormativity that he would simply judge me and mm. that he wouldn't be able to receive that transformation in in real life. Yeah, I try not to think about it like that too much because there's so many like variables that we might never have the answer to Mm. um but what happened happened and it happened for a reason and like you said like what it was necessary for whatever reason it was necessary even if that just means the stars aligned in a certain way like it happened because it needed to happen yeah um and so what I think um, what Lloyd is um, bringing out is like, what do we do now that we're in a different space? Like that is why it's so important to to think about time differently because um, yes, we might not be able to go back and change how we left or we wouldn't have even if we could, but we can go back to the things that we left now and mm-hmm. start to rebuild that relationship now. And that is what I am trying to do with my little brother because um, it's never too late like yeah we left and we left a lot of things behind and it had a, a big effect but it's never too late to start working on on doing that and, and rebuilding that bond um with with the the, the people in your life yeah it's very important to remember it's never too late i think um that is something to remember i i am i feel like i'm at a better space to um heal with others i think i'm in a space that I feel comfortable healing with my loved ones. And when I was, when I was back home, huh? You've done a lot of work. Yeah. Like I've done the work by myself internally, emotionally. And now I'm able to 
be comfortable to um, in my own skin and gradually learning with those people that I love. Because at a time, I did not believe I could. So now I'm able to go back and um, be be more comfortable and freeing. And I'm realizing now that it 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 may have not been that hard. I can't think of what it would have would have been in the past, but right now it is not as hard as I. And I'm thankful for my I think for my personal experience that I am like oh now I'm able to be comfortable and talk about relationships and talk about my yeah. identity, talk about my mental state, like. Recently, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, I was saying like recently, like I've started to talk about my mental health with my family. And that is something that is like, woo, Mm -hmm. that I never knew would be a conversation that I'll be able to grasp with. And it's being received um, in a very positive light. I was kind of afraid of that. So that was all I was going to add to that. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I think that it's important, like when we start talking about shoulda, coulda, woulda, like, we wouldn't have had a lot of the language. We would. You mm-hmm. have to be able to have healed yourself to heal a lot of the relationships. Like you have to at least know what healing looks like. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. And so if we had tried to do that before we knew what healing looked like <laughs> or we knew what was healthy for us, like we would have just continued to destroy that relationship, even if we stayed fun. physically in that space. And so, yeah, I think learning to learning how to heal yourself is really, really important to um, learning how to heal with other people as you uh, raised it, which I love. Mm-hmm. I do too. Well, thank you so much, Hari, for coming by. Uh, first of all, like, having you here, we don't talk to a lot of authors, but getting you guys in here is such a different experience. We obviously appreciate all of our guests, but we talk to a lot of musical artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always talk about emotion through that way, but through text, uh, it seems, especially because it's such a long time, like it's such a more vulnerable experience. So thank you for sharing and being willing to come and talk to us. It is of course, pleasure. this was one of my favorite conversations about the book. So thank you. Of course. <laughs> Where can our listeners, subscribers, um, follow you and also uh, purchase Black Boy Out of Time? I am Hari Ziad on all social media. Well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's H-A-R-I-Z-I-Y-E-D. Um, and you can find the book wherever you buy books online. Um, I always recommend getting it through a local bookstore. Um, they can usually, even if they're not carrying it currently, um, if you ask, they'll order it in for you, which is great because it also exposes that bookstore to mm-hmm. um, the book. So definitely do that. But you can buy it anywhere, Amazon, anywhere yeah. else online. Um, and yeah. Also, shout out to Ray Spader. Like, shout out to that as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I knew there was something I forgot to do. Yes. Thank you for that platform as well. I'm so excited to read uh, Amber's, uh, what, is it an essay? Yes. It's yes. Essay. I'm very excited to read that. Um, I, <laughs> at some point, I'm going to get on this platform and we're going to talk about death. And I know it's going to be more but We're going to have fun, though. We're gonna We've do. talked about it. Have I we? think we've Ex- talked about it. Let's talk about death, baby. Extensively. Uh, we can follow up. We can do part two. Uh, okay. We can do the reverse. We can do the remix. Um, well, but yes. To listen to that conversation. I, I I feel like all of my work is about death in some way or another. So. Shouldn't yeah. it be? Like, if, are we not living to die? Like, <laughs> some, at some point, it really ends up everywhere. Yeah, and that I think you- if we talk about death more and learn how to grieve loss more... Uh, we'd be in a very different space collectively. 
I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like we always say, you all can follow us on our social media platforms as well to continue the conversation if you want. You can hit me up on my Instagram and Twitter at underscore Lord Every. That is underscore L-O-R-D-E-V-E-R-Y on Instagram and Twitter. And you guys know that you can follow me on Instagram at Derwin King. That's D-E-R-W-I-N-K-I-N-G. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Free Negro. <laughs> I don't usually mess that up. And you can follow me on Twitter (laughs) at Free Negro, F R E E N E G R E A U X. And if you all would like to continue the conversation on the podcast platform, you can hit us up at That Black Boy Joy on Instagram and Twitter. And if you all would like to write in or be a guest on the show, you can hit us up at That Black Boy Joy Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, you all can watch our visuals on YouTube as well at That Black Boy Joy. And like we always tell everybody, please be so in love with who you are. Bye.